this is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty, where we help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we'd like to talk about most, which is loyalty and loyalty programs. As our most listened to podcast to date has been Why Loyalty, it seems only fitting to cover off the alternative by asking why not loyalty. As a loyalty consultancy, we work with a wide range of companies to design, build and fix loyalty programs. But in at least three occasions in the last two years, our advice has been to either not launch a program or close the program that's currently in place. So under what circumstances does a reward-based loyalty program not work or is not the correct strategy? To help you explore this fascinating subject, I'm joined by a panel who have hands-on experience of dealing with this question. So please could I welcome Phil Rubin from Washington. Hi, Phil. Hello, Ian. Good to see you. And confusingly, Phil Hawkins from Australia. Hi, Phil. Hi, Hi, Ian. Now, for this podcast, we'll have Phil H and Phil R, so hopefully we won't get too confused, if that's okay. And uh, Mark Ross-Smith from KL. Hi, Mark. Good morning from this part of the world. Yeah, and it's and this is a truly global podcast. So Mark has taken the has has jumped on the grenade and taken the the midnight the, well the, the four in the morning call. So I really appreciate that, Mark. We'll try and keep you awake. Good. So I got lucky. It's almost cocktail hour for me. <laughs> well, exactly. You've got you've got a good one, Phil. So um, so who's so to start us off tonight? Can you give us a quick introduction to yourselves and your and your loyalty experience? So Phil H, do you want to kick us off on that one? Thanks, Ian. Uh, yeah, I first became involved in loyalty about 30 years ago uh, when the Australian Flybys program was in, in its uh, embryonic stages. And since then, I've uh, been involved in loyalty program execution, uh, management, design and operations, and also some associated disciplines such as uh, digital marketing and campaign design and execution and uh, increasingly privacy and security. Perfect. And, uh, and you, Phil, are? Me, Phil R. I, my first loyalty work was in 1989 uh, when I went to work for an airline. I would say the rest is history, but pretty much since 1989 with a few brief detours into the areas of things like brand advertising, but uh, really for most of the last, I guess, 33, 34 years, the focus has been loyalty client side and agency and consulting side. Perfect. And uh, you, Mark? I feel like the new kid on the block here. Um, <laughs> I, but but I, I started off my career member retention for an internet e-commerce company in the year 2000. I was 18 years old at the time. And since then, uh, I've been involved in telco loyalty. I run a large social network, which had a lot, big loyalty component in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, sort of moved on running loyalty for Malaysia Airlines, hence still in Malaysia. Uh, and now running loyalty status co, where we work with really large major travel brands like Emirates, Lufthansa, Canada, Latam, and a bunch of other other big airlines all around elite status monetization. Perfect. So we should all have, we, we've got the right people in the room, that's for sure. So, so Phil H, in flybys, working in Coles, that had a range of brands that either were in flybys or weren't in flybys. So do you want to give us a bit of a background into some of those decisions that were why brands would sometimes join or sometimes not join the loyalty program? You've been through this many times. Indeed, Ian. Uh, the the examples that occurred to me first when you wrote um, when you brought up this topic were some brands who I think probably went into it for the wrong reasons. Uh, I think I think a uh, me too reason is a poor reason. My competitors have it, so therefore I have to have it, and you end up really not going it into the for the right reasons uh, another one 
is where uh, they go into a loyalty program and don't have the proper uh, backing from executives. And uh, one I've seen quite a bit is where they thought that the loyalty program would the panacea would be the panacea and 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 cure all ills. You know, for a for a hotel uh, establishing a loyalty program, the the influence of loyalty points is not going to cover over. Uh, inadequacies in the rest of your offering. You know, if the rooms are dirty and the rest of the experience is no good, the existence of a loyalty program isn't really going to help much. Another one under the same heading is uh, fuel. If you're off the price, off the off the pace continually with your fuel price, the uh, the loyalty points are not going to be a uh, something that's going to account for much in the overall equation. And did each of those discussions happen when? brands were considering joining or are you saying that this is this was retrospective when they did join and then they thought crikey we've made a mistake yeah unfortunately i think most of the examples were ones that were after the event and uh, you know particularly in the world of coalition loyalty you you try to become expert at you know undertaking all of those correct conversations before you launch into it but in more than one example you kind of got the unpleasant surprise a little way down the track yeah, I've got a really good coalition example as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, no, thanks, Phil. Phil, that was really useful. And and Phil Rubin, would you want to do you want to add to that? I mean, you must you've again been through this many times. Yeah, I mean, I think we in my old firm, our dialogue, we had a little bit of a different perspective on loyalty than a lot of the industry, and we really looked at loyalty as in as much of a strategy, really a business strategy and really differentiated between loyalty, loyalty marketing and loyalty programs, right? Loyalty is the goal, right? Loyalty is a customer that isn't going to be swayed solely on price, right? Or, or it implies there's a willingness to go out of their way or pay a premium for a brand. So how you go about achieving that from a customer is what we described as loyalty marketing, which really was was the this de- simple definition of paying attention to customers and treating them accordingly and then when you when you start from that goal that definition the loyalty program was always the enabler especially when there was transaction anonymity and then depend you know so then you get to what is the nature of the business model right which Phil already touched on a little bit What's the nature of the product or the distribution? I, I love your example for hotels, right? Before you had these mega hotel companies with 35 brands under their broad banner. You know, I'm talking about like a Bonvoy or ALL or, would you know, pick your, pick your favorite. Um, if you don't have a hotel in, in a certain place, it, you, you're not going to be viable to compete with the big programs from the Marriott's, the Accor's, and, and all that. But it also, you get into some of these other factors, like, are they a luxury brand? Are they a super defined brand where loyalty really is, or, or loyalty in the transactional sense, the accrual and redemption and reward sense, isn't a good fit? Subscriptions versus transactional business models um, another great example, I know we've got a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of experience with telecom, right? It's kind of a binary, largely a binary thing where you don't have the spread between 
low and high customer value that you do with a credit card or an airline or a hotel. And so then those all become different factors that, that we would embed into the calculus or, or the diagnostics of strategy and then get to program. And we got, I've got a bunch of examples I can share, but there were, and there were also cases, and I, I love your setup, Ian, that there are cases where loyalty actually, or, and, well, and Phil, you, you did the same thing, Loyalty is actually a negative, can be a negative feature for certain categories and certain brands. I always wanted to do, I always thought if I was going to go get a PhD, that one of my, one of my ideas for a thesis would be in certain categories, loyalty is actually raises to a conscious level the idea of defection. Yeah, uh, this is, and this is exactly my point. In fact, I'll go on to it now because um, when I, I was in a utility company in the UK <clears throat> and we were partners with a coalition loyalty program and and loyalty in a coalition program just didn't work for that category because you've got long-term relationships with customers that sometimes go on 20 years. You you think that going to defect, people are going to defect at some point and they do, people do leave and there is churn but it's impossible to predict when that churn would be. So the formula of giving loyalty out as a reward for over years on the hope that you can predict when that person is going to leave was made the, made the maths impossible. So what I said, in, and Phil, you might the, the, the words we were using is, what we need is not a loyalty program. What we need is a disloyalty program. We need, we need or a disloyalty mechanic which helps identify and reward the customers who are about to leave not the ones who are about to that we've had for a long time and that's a total f- fix and it's very difficult to make a transactional based points program fit that you can do all sorts of other activities and I like your thing about strategies retention strategies that are perhaps a better fit than a traditional loyalty earn and burn program a really quick example 1990 call it 95 96 we had a client in the cable tv industry and this was before cable was converging with data and, and local dial tone and mobile the way it is now. And this client was obsessed with Marriott rewards. It was, I think it was, no, it was Marriott Honored Guest. I can't remember what it was at the time. Anyway, the guy was obsessed and he wanted nothing more than to create Marriott Honored Guest wrapped around this cable brand. And he, he wanted to do it for what he thought were the right reasons. But we basically spent six months helping him understand and doing research that that was not going to work, especially back then in the cable business, which and then when you think about that or the or the, the wireless business back in the day, there were contracts. <laughs> so you didn't really need a loyalty program if the customer has a contract. And and to your point, a disloyalty program, which is. An early termination fee, yeah, right? Perfect. Three three hundred dollars ETF. Well, there's there's a reason that there's a, there's one you know carrot stick. That's a big. That's not a stick. That's like a big. Well, I would say I would call it a baseball bat. You guys would call it a cricket cricket yeah, bat. Yeah, cricket bat. Cricket bat would do it. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid the punishment. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes. And, and, and Mark, would you like to take on the airline ones because you you worked in aim before so. How do you explain that um, some, obviously, we talk about airlines being, loyalty programs being super profitable, but yet some of the biggest airlines in the world don't have a loyalty program. So how does that work? 
I think you might be referring to some of the big low-cost airlines in certain regions, starting with E, ending with E. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, they have subscription programs, so they, they have something, but I think that provides some insight to their thinking on loyalty. In Low-cost airlines live and die by ancillaries, and that's because the price of a ticket is generally a lot lower than a full service or legacy carrier. So they rely very heavily on ancillary. And traditionally in a loyalty program, an airline, you've got tiers and tiered members don't pay for ancillaries. They get the free bags, they get the free seat, they get the lounge, they get the priority boarding, they get all these things. And largely that is because the price of a ticket is a lot more. So that's how it's kind of funded. It's funded through the ticket price, but that doesn't really exist on a low cost airline because it's all about ancillaries. So if you go giving all your ancillaries away for free, what could you possibly give in a traditional type model? So because status members ain't going to pay for seats or bags, you know, we see, we see this on traditional airlines as well, where in fact, one of my favorite airlines, I was going through the booking flow. I'm a gold member of this airline. And it's like, do you, do you want to, you can pay an extra, I can't remember, it's like $30 and you can take your six-year-old daughter into the business class lounge. Now, I get a free guest, my, my daughter. I can take it for free. And yet they're trying to sell me something that I already get. And you know, in the airline world, status holders represent you know, the top 5% or so of, of customers in the airline. And they contribute somewhere around 30% of total revenue for the airline. So these are the, the best customers an airline can possibly have. They spend more, more frequently, the, what I call the right type of money. And... They want different things. They don't want the free seats, the free because they, they expect it. They they want to. I think they want to buy other stuff. They want to buy double tier miles on the next flight. They want to buy the escort through the airport so they don't have to line up with everyone else. They 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 the willingness for them to pay is astronomical, and they're not price sensitive because they just want to feel good. It's all about status. It's all about ego. It's all about taking the pain out of that experience, which is why they value status in a traditional airline. So I think, you know, like we work with both Spirit and Frontier, two ultra big, ultra low cost airlines in the US. And we, they both have pretty decent loyalty propositions, tiers in, in both of those programs. And they're ultra successful. You know, I think if um, some other airlines in other parts of the world were to take some inspiration from North America and look at how they're doing it, why they're doing it, and how they can monetize their tiers, I think this could get super, super interesting. And to be fair, it could be like the next way, the next 100 billion in ancillary revenues low-cost airlines could sort of unlock by effectively selling stuff to people like, that people want to buy. You know, not everyone wants to buy an extra 10-kilogram bag. They, they want to buy other stuff. There so is guess- unlimited money in the world today. People want to spend so I guess you're saying, you know, there's that old saying in frequent flyers that it's it's amazing how much people will pay for a free free flight. You're actually flipping it by saying the the low cost carriers are saying it's amazing how much will people will pay for ancillaries by if you give them a cheap flight. And I guess you're saying that there's those two strategies are on either end. And you need to just really maximize either be one or the other, but don't be both. I think you could do both. It's about selling the right thing to the right person at the right time. And just because someone's flying a low-cost airline does not mean that they are a low-cost person. No. You've got millionaires and billionaires flying low-cost airline all day long. They want to buy stuff. You know, maybe they have to fly at this low-cost airline because the airline of choice 
is $1 more and their company policy says they have to fly the cheapest flight of the day. Therefore, boom, they're locked into this one airline, but they, they want to take the pain out of it. They, they're happy to pay an extra 20 bucks to skip a line, you know, all this other stuff that's outside the normal. And so, you know what? It's <laughs> another example. There's another airline I book stuff through. I've booked probably a thousand flights through this airline in the last 20 years. This is a well-known airline, big brand in the lines. Every time it says, do you want to do you want to buy travel insurance for $15.60, whatever it is? Every time I press no, you'd think this hell I'd learned not to show me travel insurance yeah, by yeah, now. Yeah, Sell yeah. me something else that I will buy because I'm clearly not buying travel insurance. Yeah. But I mean, in, in that, I've always, what you just said about the, the low-cost carriers, I was always, if, if anyone's listening to this from an airline, call the, 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 the loyalty company up and ask the person running the co-brand where the top five brands that on spend on that card are. And I will guarantee there will be at least one or two low-cost carriers in that top five. So, you know, to your point, Mark, rich people fly low-cost carriers. They do, <laughs> especially I, frequent I, flyers. I, I live in, in Southeast Asia where it's pretty common where people have, they got, you know, three or four cars. They've got their Lamborghini, Ferrari, but they drive around their 20-year-old Toyota every day. <laughs> That's kind of normal. So you can't really judge a person by who they fly or what they drive. It's all about their intent, their interest. And I think airlines have a long way to go on this. Yeah, the other, the other one I'd throw in there is, is I think there's a core balance between reward and ease. And I think where, where programs, if they get that wrong, that's when you have to shut it down and think again or have another view because everyone will judge a program on what reward I get and what pain do I have to go through to get it. And some of that payback can be literally nothing. So there's a, you know, Pets at Home in the UK is a classic example where they have a really high penetration of their customers using that program and the customer effectively gets virtually nothing back. There's a charity redemption and there's offers back that they get, but it's incredibly easy to take part. You either swipe your card or scan your phone or they say, if you've forgotten your card, they ask you for your phone number or your postcode. So it's almost impossible to get past the point of sale without telling them. But the reward you get back is, is little or none to the customer. Whereas others, if you have that, if there's too much pain at the point of sale and your reward rate isn't, is not justifying the, the, the fee or the, the pain, then you get to the point where it just doesn't make sense. In which case, if your program isn't acquiring new customers or keeping the edges, the, the end tail happy, you, may as, you really may as well close it down simply because it's just too much effort to win the margins. Otherwise, the customers that are going to take part are just the ones who are most loyal and have the most to benefit. Does that do, do? Do you guys agree with that? Have you seen that in action? Yeah, I, I've seen that with the program I was associated with in the early days of flybys. There was, you know, a period of a, a, a few years in where the owners suddenly lost, oh, not I don't know, lost their nerve, but but collectively took the decision to make the program less rewarding. And you you had exactly that effect. And I I remember the Vox Pops from the members they were saying things like oh look I, yeah I, I i still show that card but i don't know why i show it yeah and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and 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 you know that 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 was actually a, a very very important thing for 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 to hear and, and eventually the right decision was made was look um gosh this program is dying a slow death we need to throw we, we need to change things dramatically and and fortuitously there was a substantial investment 
and and the program never looked back. But but I remember in those early days, or a, a few years in, where you could see that the size of the carrot just it, it wasn't enough, and people couldn't couldn't see their way through to the you know the aspiration of get of getting to an award that we were advertising. And and another good example from my point of view from that was um was was with the, with a smart card. It was all is I guess the lesson is the wrong technology. So we chose a technology that was actually very analogous to NFTs now, where you had a card and and in order to get that that the, the points were actually resided on the card, not in the database. They were physical bits on a on a chip that was in a card and it's brilliant for um for retail because you just trust the card all the time they trust the card it can't be broken it's all that's all the stuff blockchain says now you could do on a smart card the problem is is if you had a remote partner like a bank or a or a or a telco or something where you're earning points you actually then had to get the points onto the card and that just got too painful for too long and the the technology broke down so you know there there are times when and and I can see that happening in in other technologies now where you may have an app or you basically you choose the wrong technology it makes the gets that balance out where it becomes too difficult to justify the reward therefore the bottom falls out of it and and in our podcast last week we talked about universities they said they're absolutely seeing that now because gen x will give it like 2 minutes if if it doesn't if they can't make it work instantly that's it gone and and they their 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 attention span wanes so next year the technology will move on and if your technology doesn't match it then their their propensity to do that will will drop off as well. I mean, Phil, you're nodding. Phil, ah, you're nodding your head. You, 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 this is all resonating with you as well. Yeah, well, because I th- I think the ultimate thing that loyalty should accomplish, especially for better, more engaged, more committed customers, and those relationships, is to unlock. And this is this goes directly to Mark's business. Is loyalty is ultimately about a better customer experience. And it's about the better customer experience for the right customers. So whether those are things designed to appeal to customers' ego, to their value of time, to their their perception of being stuck in an airport terminal versus in a VIP lounge or in the back of the plane having to fight for overhead bin space for their for their luggage. Those are all the types of things that to his point, and, and the value in where do programs do play a role in terms of being the scorecard, the tracking mechanism of customer value so that the customer knows their value and the brand, the, you know, the merchant, the airline, whoever, knows the value of that member very quickly at a glance. And like, yeah, well, let me, let me make sure I find a place for your bag in the front of the plane as opposed to 10 rows behind where you're sitting. And, and it also gets into like the psychology of all that. But the problem, to your point, is you've got a lot of examples where technology is driving strategy. Mm. And you, especially today, there's lots of new technologies. And, you know, when the technology is put in place before the strategy, it may not work, in which case... It'll, it, you can't, you know, that's sort of this Hippocratic oath of loyalty, do not, do no harm, right? You can, you can actually do more harm. I mean, forget the whole conscious retention or conscious defection idea that I was talking about a few minutes ago in terms of that, that thesis idea. If the better experience isn't coming from some other mechanism, like a membership fee, like 
the price paid for something, right? I mean, going through the cha- seeing the changes that are being made to all the programs in the U.S. and elsewhere because of all the grandfathering that took place from COVID, especially where people couldn't travel and, and, and all the airlines said, well, you know, we'll keep you at top tier for an extra 14 months or, you know, effectively, what, like 26 months, 24 months of tier status. All of a sudden, everybody's downgrading. And so then the question becomes, and there have been some innovative things where like American will come out and say, you can buy status for $1,346 or, and you, you know, as a, as a, as the consumer, you do the math and you're like, well, how many flights might I just pay to upgrade to effectively get the same thing without paying for the status and then still having to pay to upgrade. So you can, you can walk up to an airline put down a credit card, buy a first-class seat, have no status, especially if it's international, and you can have close to the same experience. Yeah, and I think that's that's one thing that came out of lockdown is people have, have tried those things and they're quite happy with it, right? As again, it's this it's this, this theory of value has moved on and uh, and loyalty programs, I guess, have had to move with that and roll with those punches as well. And, and you know, I think the airlines are unique in terms of being able to create a differentiated customer experience. Right. You can't you can't let everybody board first. So having some arbiter of who gets on who gets to board first is fine. But if it's e-commerce and everybody's package is going to be delivered at the same time, then what different like where does loyalty make that experience better unless it has to do with expedited shipping or, you know, immediate local courier from some other third party or, you know, whatever, whatever that alternative might be. It's sort of hard to generalize airlines, retail, and, you know, telecom services or some other types of services. But there's absolutely places where loyalty degrades the customer experience. It takes longer. It's, it creates a longer queue at checkout if it's a physical store. And customers walk, they get out of the line. I'll give you another example of this, um, Phil, where, where it degrades. Well, well, whether it degrades or not, who knows, but I'll tell you the rest of the story. So... We had a we were in a utility company who had a loyalty com- loyalty thing and we were measuring the churn differential between members and non-members. So what's the churn rate between members and non-members? And the first month it was ninety percent different. Happy days. Everyone's everyone in marketing pats themselves on the back. We've like, we've we've created this thing where the churn differential is ninety percent lower on the loyalty program than the non-loyalty program. Next month it went down. We weren't too fast with it. Next month it went down. Next month it went down. Next month it went down. Kept followed a sort of curve. Until it started to go past zero, <laughs> in which case the marketing department had to go and scratch their heads and go, "Hang on, you know your your Hippocratic oath of don't do any harm. How come customers on the loyalty program are churning more than customers not on the loyalty program? Because rewarding them can't make them less loyal. They can't have said, "I've got this reward and I hate my company more than than the people who weren't rewarded." <laughs> but because because in, in in utilities particularly. You have this base of customers that were given to them basically by the government ages ago, or equally banks, utilities. They have this ingrained passive base that don't read their email, don't do anything, don't you know that effectively there's there's and again it came back to this this idea of loyal a disloyalty program rather than a loyalty program because what we chose to to believe in that was that all we all the loyalty program had done was identify a group of customers that read emails that were promotionally active and therefore were probably likely to churn with other people. 
that that argument was true, but it was more of a reflection of the wrong strategy than than nothing anything else. Does that make sense? What's both the original and the greatest loyalty strategy ever? It it's physics. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's inertia. Mm. There's a huge. There's always a huge segment of customers that they're just gonna they're just gonna be going along regardless of what the loyalty proposition is or is not. And they're never going to go anywhere and they're going to be sort of steady state. And, you know, that's where there's a lot of customers in a lot of cases that don't need any sort of loyalty treatment. We had a brand that came to us in the last two years that said, you know, we've got this customer group that buy six meals out of seven from us every day, every week. And they but they don't feel rewarded. We're like, well, happy days. <laughs> you must be doing something right, but don't have a loyalty program. Or at least if you have a loyalty program, don't try and measure it because you will, you, you know, you, you might want to make them happier, but they're not going to make them more loyal, right? <laughs> I see the same effect in um, over the last probably 10 years in Australia with health insurance providers. It seems in the last 10 years, there's been a merry-go-round of different programs attaching themselves to the to the different health insurance companies and they all seem to switch and they offer a very big bounty of points to switch to them and feel it's a bit like what you're talking about that it's it seems to have woken up at least a portion of the market who in the absence of anything else happening would have stayed with all of those and now you you're almost promoting with this certain subset of customers them churning all the time because they're attracted by the big lump of points over in the um, uh, over with the other provider, and and the fact that you know one provider will be with Qantas Frequent Flyer one you know one year and then switch to Woolworths Everyday Awards the next year, you know it all becomes very con- confusing. But it it creates well it, it it does it does in a sense promote disloyalty because it's woken up that group who I think if you didn't have all of that activity happening might have stayed with the same provider. But this is where it comes down to doing the math and and getting the right data and measuring it correctly. And and I'll give you a really good example of that. We worked with a company recently where they had one of the big consultancies come in. I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to get where they came in and said they measured they measured customers they measured anonymous you said it yourself Phil anonymized non-anonymized they measured anonymized customers coming in and out of this 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 entity. So they knew how many, they could identify individuals or proxy for individuals coming in and out of retail. And they said that 25% of customers were, 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 were accounting for 65% of visits, therefore they needed a loyalty program. When we went and measured this in much more detail using payment mechanics and a number of other things to really understand customers, we actually found it was only 5% that were driving a, a high proportion, but, it was, but most customers were only visiting once a year because most of the customers coming in that door were quite frankly going to the toilet. Okay, and uh, and they weren't actually they were coming in the door, but they weren't buying anything. Okay, literally, <laughs> literally, and and any so again, it comes down to this thing about saying measure. The, you know, don't I? I think don't have a loyalty program to understand your customers. Those days are gone. You can do lots of technologies to understand your customers, and then once you truly understand that, you could then ha- you know then decide and get your maths right. And again, that fits with you, Mark, about your model about. You get something that fits your your model functionally, economically, and strategically, and then make it work. But don't just have one again. Again, you like your your one Phil H about saying, you know, the me too. So many people have one because someone else has one. 
And that's what I really like about the frequent flyer programs, Mark, because they haven't been following the sheep, have they? You know, in lots of cases. Well, they follow each other. Yeah. <laughs> so <let's be> sure. <laughs> Are they I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I, I think to your point earlier, you know, in 2020, 2021, airline loyalty programs had to dig deep and soul search a little bit to reinvent some of what they were doing. Some of that was forced upon them um, to drive, to just they needed cash, yeah? That's when they went out and mortgaged their loyalty programs and all sorts of stuff and they got a bit creative. I think there was a bit of a tipping point there where they they looked at it and go, you know what, we've been selling points and miles for forever and we make a lot of money out of it. We don't really sell status. We don't really do much around that. And I think that's where that kind of started. And, you know, I, I see, I look at what airlines do really well on the status side and I think how could other industries leverage that concept? You know, you've got the millions of people kind of what we'll call addicted to status when they fly. Those same people are going to have the same mentality when they're not flying. I, th I think there's something there. I don't think anyone's really cracked it. But, you know, I would like to see some sort of partnership with an airline and some sort of real-world brand where your, your gold status with an airline gets you some on-the-ground benefit with some, you know, some retail. That'd be kind of cool. Phil, oh, you wanted to come in there. So, so a couple of things. Um, I think Delta Airlines is starting to go in that direction because with the, they have this new program or new product feature program, whatever you call it, where they're leading, at least in the US, with free onboard Wi-Fi for exclusively for SkyMiles members. So it's a way to move move up past that stuck point of you know, 50, 60% capture rate of, in terms of frequent flyer membership on, on board on any given flight. Um, but what they're doing is they're enhancing the value proposition just like you're suggesting, Mark, with partners. And they they talked about this at CES in, in Las Vegas and in January, Consumer Electronics Show, the big the big show in Las Vegas that they do every year. And they had Ed Baston doing a keynote there talking about this Delta Sync thing, which they're slowly ramping up, creating ways to to provide ben those types of status benefits with partners. And there is a huge opportunity to do that. And, and so, so far, it's in a lot of the same categories that you would expect, right? It might be with Lyft or like Delta's partnering with, with Lyft. And they are doing some cool things experientially. But I think back to what Mark was talking about in terms of how do you think about creating the right kind of customer propositions set where you strip out points and rewards, whether somebody's paying for it or the the brand is smart enough to figure out what is driving this customer or this segment of customers. Because it's not just people are not and, and Mark also made the point, people have more money than they than they can possibly spend right now. Um, I don't think that's true for every you know, especially in this country, it's really bad from an that's a whole nother topic, income inequality. But we did a bunch of research back at our dialogue and we developed this model um, and we proved it out in a couple of places where, where clients were willing to make the investment. But we identified five fundamental drivers and only one was financial, the, the, but the other ones go point right to the whole status value proposition, which is recognition, 
which addresses whether it's ego or we know our value, we expect the company that we're doing business with to know our value too. So show me you know me kind of thing, right? The value of time, which is don't waste my time. So let me board on appointment. Let me get into the store when I need to. Let me have a seamless transactional experience, right? There's, there's, there's a whole segment of people out there who value time, to Mark's point, more than money, right? So why do you, you don't need to give them free stuff. What you need to do is figure out how to serve them first or faster and create shortcuts for them so they at least feel like they're not wasting their time. And then there's other, there, there were other drivers too, like keeping people informed, um, especially we think about like the travel experience and a lot of other ones where there's all this anxiety because you're forced to sit in this seat for long periods of time, you, you know, and there's the, the whole psychology of being sort of held captive that creates a level of anxiety that's assuaged by some of these things like, okay, sit in the front of the plane, be the first one off, get, get a free cocktail, and this whatever is, those things are. And this is where the low-cost carriers, where they do have programs that might not be related to points, are pulling on those strings. They're just having them with subscriptions or other things, so... And if you right, if if you value those things, pay not only them. do you not need a discount for those things, you're willing to pay for them, which is why people are willing to pay. They're willing to pay literally or figuratively for status. Yeah. So so just to finish off tonight, Phil H, do you want to flip it on his head and say, you know, where was where would it be a slam dunk? You know, where you had partners where where it really made sense, you know, it, 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 it ticked all the boxes. What would you say those boxes would be where you say, you know what, in this, in this case, absolutely does make sense, right? I think I think it, it, it used to be where you could, you know, from the data that you got, it could lead to genuine, actionable insight. But the ones that I recall most strongly, uh, it was very clear that a loyalty construct would actually drive meaningful behaviour change. And it was very easy to demonstrate. Those are the cases that I probably remember the, the, the most strongly. And it didn't take long for that to become evident. I totally agree with that. I think that, you know, we're, most people say if you work in an, in an airline particularly or a, or a big brand. I mean, Phil, you've seen this for your time at Sears and other places where, where some, some people work for that brand and only that brand for the whole of their lives. So they might have only ever seen one or perhaps two loyalty programs we're all on this podcast. We're all lucky because we've seen many. We know it works. We know it works. We know it drives enormous value for certain companies. So if if you're suspicious of it not working or that it's somehow broken, it probably is, <laughs> because we have seen it drive spectacular benefits. And I guess that's what you're saying, Phil. You know, if it's working, you probably know it, right? You know it because it's it's doing well and you've got measurable insights and it's 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 adding value. If it isn't, then it probably is not. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It, it, absolutely, it, it makes sense. And and you know, for a loyalty program operator, it's it's a wonderful moment when you see that where you're convincing the stakeholders that it's having that impact. Um, and absolutely fabulous when you get that feedback from your members as well. Um, and when your program gets voted number one, it's you know most popular program. I was I would add one to Phil's list. We had a client retailer. Uh, I won't mention them. They went from having a very sort of rudimentary loyalty program to something more robust with multiple tiers and, and 
a very, like we were very diligent in crafting different value propositions for each tier, which were spend-based, recognizing that different customers had very different wants and needs at different spend levels. And rather than just take our word for it, and, you know, we, of course, built the business case X, you know, up front, and, and then we measured it after, but they brought in one of those very, you know, high-end management, broader management consulting firms that we've all heard about. Um, and they probably paid them a few million dollars to come up with the answer. And they told us, they, they, they came up with an even bigger number of the value that the program delivered to this retailer. I mean, it was a 10-figure, you know, it was over a billion dollars. And they said, this, this thing is delivering over a billion dollars worth of value. And at the time, this was a, this was a company where that was, that was like maybe 10% incremental enterprise value. And this was after like 18 months. Wow. So we were, we were pretty pleased. But that's the other one. When the third party is paid way more than you were paid to evaluate your work and they come up with a big number like that. So, so, that, so, that, so to finish on, it does work in a bit. Yeah, so brilliant. So if I could just, Phil, say thank you very much to our guests tonight. So thank you, Phil Rubin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun to take part. And, and, and I appreciate the rest of you being much more inconvenient from a day part standpoint than me. Yeah, or you, you, you can have a cocktail now. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, Phil Hawkins, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Ian. I enjoyed it. Cheers. And Mark Rossmith, thank you very much for getting up in the middle of the night to join us. Cheers. It's been a very interesting conversation. I'm glad I got up. I learned a couple of things today. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. And if you like the podcast, please like, share or comment on social media. And we look forward to your company again soon. So thank you for listening and goodbye.